mean into my life, into our life, and what God might want to say and do in a very, very special way. I love this video because he's got so many truths inside there that really do help us to understand what it means to focus, what it means to understand who God is. Now, if you have your app today on the phone, there are several things we want to look at. First of all, if you go onto the app, you're going down to the bottom, there's a little symbol of a church that says Graceland. If you go there, it's got sermon notes, connection card, groups, curriculum, all those are right there on the app as it relates to here at Graceland. In our groups, we start today talking about prayer. We'll be doing that for the next five weeks. That material is right there on the app. You can read through that, see that, work on it during the week, look at the discussion questions, talk about it. Because what we want to do is to see prayer really begin to change who we are and how we hear from God. What God is saying to us, what God is speaking to us, how we take prayer into the lives. Prayer is not just something we do. We don't just have prayer because we do something. Prayer should be our life. It should be how we are living out our life in relationship to God. It is what keeps us in connection with who God is and what God wants to do. We want to do that through our groups, through our curriculum, through our understanding as we engage with God, what that means for you, what that means for all of us, and really what that means for the church. So I really want to encourage you to use that to look through that during the week, to begin to ask some of those questions and not just blow through them in the sense of, we'll do some of that in our group study where we actually spend some time with those questions, really being able to live those out into our lives and what they begin to say to us. Also on the app is the sermon notes for today. You'll see some of those on the screen as we go through them, but actually I've added more of those to the notes that are in the app. So if you want to look at those, we'll be walking through the message and being able to see how they really, really do connect with what we want to talk about today. We want to talk today about the whole beginning of what prayer is. We'll do that in our groups when we talk about purpose and place and talking about the secret place of prayer inside the groups. But today I really wanted to kind of back up to the beginning and, and build that foundation for us, not that we don't already know it for those of us who are followers of Christ, for those of us who've been in the church for a long time. It seems to be to me, though, that a lot of us aren't engaged in prayer to the level that we need to be. We think that prayer only happens at occasion. We think that prayer only happens when we need something from God. We think that prayer only happens in the morning when we are in a devotion time. But really, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> man, I've had this, this, man, this crazy weather, right? Just stop there and do that. I meant to do this before we really got going. I really wanted to pray for, for also just for the coronavirus stuff, right? Not that my cough has anything to do with it. Don't, don't get alarmed. <laughs> we don't want to go there. Uh, but, you know, it's really sad to, to see all this happening. And, and I really hope you're praying for that. I really hope you're praying for families and for people. I read a great article this week that talked about how God could use uh, that kind of situation around the world as, as he opens up the world? Wouldn't that be just that's incredible? Uh, even in this video that we saw, the whole idea that disease can drive us to pray. A disease can drive us to focus on, on the globalization of, of Christ in the world. And uh, let's just stop then and just, and just ask God to use that in a special way. Father, we come to you right now as we talk about prayer today. Lord, as we talk about the needs of the world around us, we talk about the virus that's going all over the world and the global impact, the global discussion that it's having. Lord, we would pray that in somehow in your economy and what you do and how you work, you would use that in order to glorify yourself, in order that we and others 
might be able to minister to people and to care for people and to show the love of Christ. Whatever that means, Father, we leave that to you. But we pray that you would help us just to be faithful in praying for those around the world who are in great need, who are struggling, who's losing family members, who are in fear. And Father, we pray that we know that for us, faith overcomes fear. So we pray, Lord, that that would be true as we pray for others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Great, thanks for letting me do that, because I think that's something that, that we really need to be about as we walk through this. As we look at prayer and begin to think about the beginning of prayer, I want to take you all the way back to Genesis, because it was in Genesis, the fourth chapter, that we recognize that prayer really does begin. And why do I say it really does begin? Because, see, Adam and Eve were walking with God. They were communing with God. They were in communication with God on a constant basis. And that really is what prayer is, too, by the way. Prayer is the understanding that we are in such a place that we are constantly in prayer with God. That there's, a, there's not something, like I said, that we just stop and do. It's something that's a lifestyle. We see that from Adam and Eve in the very beginning. They were with God. They were communicating with God. God was walking with them. And that's a real key to prayer. The real key to prayer is how are we walking with God inside of all the things that are happening around us? I'll say that time and time again as we go through this message and other messages that it really isn't something we do. It's a relationship. It's walking with God in, in, in that whole process. Well, you, you know the story of Adam and Eve. They were there in the garden. They were walking with God. They took of the, the fruit of the tree. They did exactly what God told them not to do. And then we began to see all that begin to happen. And then we see the story of Cain and Abel, uh, where in that process, in that early parts of chapter four, Cain and Abel, and they were brothers, and they were the children of Adam and Eve, and all the things that happened inside that. And then you might recall at the latter end of chapter four, they are given another son. And his name is Seth. And in the last part of chapter 4, it says this. Seth had another son, and he named him Enosh. Now, the word Enosh actually means, actually translates in the Hebrew language, is man in his weakness. That's what the word actually means. So Enosh means man in his weakness. And right after that, in the very next phrase, it says, Then man began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's the first time in Scripture that we began to see that men are calling upon the name of the Lord. It's as if now there is that understanding that God is there for us, God is there for them, God is there for us, but we have to call upon him. We have to actually go to him and be able to call upon the name of the Lord. So we began to see that prayer is based on God's sovereignty. It's based on who he is. God is in all dimensions. He is in all places. He is around us all the time. And because of that, because of who he is, we're able then to go to him in prayer. We're able to take our needs to him. We're able to call upon him. Enosh meaning a man in his weakness, which we begin to see when we begin to realize our weakness, how do we respond? Well, we respond by calling upon the name of the Lord. So the foundational piece of that is to understand that God and sovereign and all that he is and all that he does, he recognizes our needs. He recognizes who we are. He recognizes the things about us. Now, the second part of that understanding of the sovereignty of God is not just about the fact that he is sovereign, but also prayer is going to be based on God's nature. Prayer is based on God's nature. Now, this was an interesting piece to me as I began to walk through this, because when you begin to realize God's nature, 
you begin to realize one of the things about God that's talked about in the Bible the most is his holiness. God is holy, right? And if God is holy, and that's a big part of his nature that's talked about the most, you might remember when Moses went to the burning bush, right? And he said to Moses, Moses, you're on holy ground. Take off your shoes because you're before a holy God. In Isaiah, Isaiah 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 3, Isaiah says, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. He is the God in the temple. So all through the Bible, we begin to understand that God is holy. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, he calls us to be holy. And that's a different kind of thinking process because in the holiness is our understanding that holiness has a standard, right? So if we are talking about prayer based on God's standard, we would begin to think, well, if, I, if I'm coming to God, then I have to be holy in order to bring something to God, in order to pray, in order to talk to God, I've got to be holy like God is. Well, the Bible also teaches that God is merciful. And one of the primary focuses of who he is in his nature is mercy, right? Matter of fact, we think of different people. James, uh, the end of James chapter 5, I don't recall the verse right now. He, he tells us, that he's, when he's talking about Job, he talks about the mercy and the compassion of God. We see that over and over in the Old Testament. He talks about the mercies of God being new every day. Right Now, when we go to prayer, we often think about the nature of God's mercy as the reason we can come to prayer and we bring things to God and God answers our prayer based on his mercy. Well, but when we begin to think about God's holiness, his standard, and God's mercy, the fact that he gives us what we need, you begin to say, how, how does that work, right? How does God, who has a, a holy standard, Take me in my weaknesses, in my sin, in my brokenness, and have mercy upon me. How does God do that? And my answer is, I don't really know how God does that. I don't know how he takes his holiness and his standard for me to be right and perfect, to be who, who I should be in him. And at the same time, he takes his mercy that's all loving and all compassion, and he brings those together in order to hear my need, in order to listen to what I'm saying. Because he tells us that's exactly what he does, and that's a huge part of the understanding of who God is, right? Not only is he, not only is he listening to us in Psalm 116, I want to read that to you. In one, Psalm 116, he says, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy, because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. So you begin to see that in this foundational piece, we begin to call upon the Lord, right? And if we're calling upon the Lord, we're calling upon one who is holy and one who is merciful at the same time. Now, in the middle of that, he also is one who is very intentional about listening to us. And that's what he tells us in Psalm 116, that he hears us. What does he hear from us? He hears the things about who we are. In the app, it talks about those. I've got those things listed. He hears in this hearing that he tells us in Psalm 116, this hearing means, even though he is the God of holiness and he is the God of mercy, both of those at the same time, this hearing that he talks about in 116, this hearing means that he is responding. Because when he hears from us, 
He responds to us. And that's what prayer is, right? Prayer is communicating with God. It is, it is saying to God what our needs are. It is saying to God things about us, but it's also hearing from God of what he might say to us, how he might guide us, what he might do and speak into our lives. So hearing takes place, and when he hears, he responds. Not only does he respond to us, but he builds a relationship with us. That's what hearing does, right? If you're talking to someone, if you're having a conversation with someone, if you're sitting at a, at a meal with someone, if you're in your family gathered at a meal or you're in a restaurant, you're talking to a friend, the more you talk and the more you listen, the more you develop a relationship. So God, as his intentional purpose, as he looks at his holiness and his mercy, has for us the fact that he's hearing us and he is responding to you, and he has a relationship that he wants to go deeper in your life. Now, that re relationship has at his heart the understanding that he is restoring us to himself. He is restoring us in our brokenness. He is restoring us in our health. We had a, a gentleman who passed away uh, just a couple of days ago, just yesterday, actually, or Friday, I guess, um, but man, his last weeks have been worshiping and focusing on God. He is talking to people about who Christ is in his life, even though as he understood clearly that his last moments were here, he was still focused on who God was. Why? Because he understood that even though the body was decaying, it was restoring his relationship to Christ. It restored who he is going to be in glory, who he is now in glory, because we believe People of the word, people that have the worldview of the Bible believe that we're going to spend eternity with God. So death is not something that we hate to see happen, though it is relationally. But death is something from the glory of God in our lives where we're able to say Christ has worked in order to hear us, in order to restore us, in order to bring us into a new life. Not only is he doing that as he is responding and building a relationship, but everything about God's redemption comes as we are asking him to redeem us. Salvation starts there, right? Salvation begins when we call upon the name of the Lord, just like in Genesis chapter 4. The Bible would teach us those who have a heart to believe in him, an understanding that we confess with our mouths is what the scripture says. And it is a calling upon the Lord. It is a recognition that he is working in our life, that he is calling unto us. But our response to that is, Lord, we are hearing you and we are responding to you. So when we begin to look at this thing of prayer, when we begin to talk about what that means as a church, it begins a foundational piece for us. It begins what God would say into our lives. Now, I know I'm talking to many people who, who pray a lot. I understand that. Many of you in this room are, are consistent in your prayer life. You're spending time with God. Many of us are, are desiring to get there, right? We want to spend more time with God. Matter of fact, Christians today believe that they do spend a lot of time with prayer, but also at the same time they say that, Christians mostly respond by saying we need to spend more time with God. We need to hear from God as we understand who he is. Now, that is a very simple foundation, a very simple understanding that from the very beginning, we begin to call upon the name of the Lord, and that hasn't changed. It hasn't changed because he is holy and he is merciful and he is intentional about what he is doing. And out of that intention, 
He hears us according to what the Bible would teach us. He is hearing what we're saying. Psalm 116, I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, if you want to turn there. Acts chapter 12 has a great story that I want to just share some of the story because it moves us from the foundational piece to the force of God, to the force of what prayer is. In Acts chapter 12, it's a story that maybe you heard somewhere along the way. Maybe you heard it in the vacation Bible school as a kid, or maybe you heard someone preach on it, but it's a miraculous story of what is happening to the early church. It's a miraculous story because it's a time where Herod was persecuting the church. In the first part of chapter 12 of Acts, he begins to talk about how Herod is killing people. And very early on in this chapter, we see that he has killed James, the brother of John. You know, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, the fishermen. Well, here in the early parts of chapter 12 of Acts, Herod kills James. Now, in the middle of that, he heard from the people that that was a great thing. People were excited that James, not not the Christians, of course, but those who were opposed to Christianity, were excited that James had been killed because it just showed that they were trying to stop the Christians' faith from spreading. A little bit later, not very much later in this verse, he takes Peter, because Peter, again, is a strong leader of the church, right? So he takes Peter... And he puts Peter in prison. And he tells us in the verses that he's actually guarded by four sets of guards for each. So there's 16 guys who are guarding Peter because they don't want anything to happen to Peter, right? So in verse 5, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, that's just a little verse down in there. So, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church of God, the church, those who were gathering, the ecclesia, the called out ones, those who were in their homes, those who were in those places where they could be, those who had, had called upon Jesus, who trusting in Jesus, that's what the, the church is, right? The church is not just a, a building for sure, but it's a group of people who have gathered together, who are trusting Christ. And that's who the church was in this early church, right? Well, they had to be, because if not, they, they knew that if they called themselves the church, they were going to be killed. They were going to be, they were going to be killed like James, or they're going to be put in prison like like Peter was. So the church was for real. They were people who were saying, yes, I'm willing to stand up. I'm willing to die because I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, right? What a, what a crazy statement that Jesus was God, that he rose from the dead. They were willing to die for that. Well, here they were praying. And it's one little verse. They were, they were praying earnestly. Now that word earnestly has to do with the idea of begging God. It has to do with, with earnest in the sense of I'm, I'm laying everything out before God. And so they were really saying in this verse, they were, they were bringing everything to God for Peter because Peter was in prison and Peter was going to be killed. Now, the rest of the story here in Acts chapter 12 is the fact that when Peter was there with the guards during the middle of the night, an angel shows up, right? You believe in angels? Well, you ought to because the Bible says they are real, right? They, they show up. Here it is. I mean, he is there. He's between the guards. He is chained up, and an angel walks in, and the angel comes in with light, and the angel releases Peter 
while the guards are just sitting there, whatever they're doing, however that happens, I don't know, that's God, right? That's the, that's the force of God. So God steps in into an, with an angel in prison, takes Peter, removes Peter out of this situation, takes Peter over to where they are praying for Peter at the house. Knocks Peter, knocks on the door. Well, first of all, he comes to his senses. Uh, it says that he, he came to his senses. He, he didn't know what was happening. He thought he was in a dream, right? He thought he was just like, man, this is a dream. I want to be released. And then the angel gets him out of jail and he comes to his senses and he's like, this is real. This is really happening. Now, how many times when we think about God's presence and we think about God's power, are we praying for something and it really happens and we think, Man, that really happened. I, I didn't really expect that. And sometimes we say that, you know, we say, I didn't really expect God to do that. Well, I think it was true for Peter. It gives us a great example that he just didn't expect God to show up in that kind of force. But God did, right? And God brought him out of prison. He goes over. He goes to the house. He goes to the place where, he, where they're praying for him, where the church is. It's in a home. He knocks on the door. This girl comes to the door. Rhonda comes to the door. She gets so excited when she sees Peter, that she goes back and tells, she didn't even let him in, according to the scripture. She didn't even open the door for him. She goes back, tells everybody else, hey, Peter's at the door. What do they say? They say, you are out of your mind. I mean, they really say that. They say, you're crazy. You have lost your mind. He is not in the door. He is in jail. Now, now think about all the pieces to that, right? Verse 5 says they're praying earnestly for Peter in prison. Peter gets out of prison. He shows about the door. What do they do? They don't believe it. They're like, you got to be crazy. It's not what you think it is. It's got to be his angel. That's what they say. It must be his angel because it's surely not him because he is in jail. Now, what does that say to us, church? It says to us that just like the early church, we get so caught up sometime in thinking we can only do what we can do, only in our power, only in our strength. Even when we're praying about it, we're not sure God's going to show up, right? And when he does, what happens? It surprises us. And we say, well, that shouldn't surprise you. You were praying about it. Well, so was the early church, but it took them by surprise. God's force in your life can take you by surprise. Don't be surprised by a surprise because it can take you by surprise, but it can change everything in context. It can change everything that happens. God's force is doing that inside our lives as believers. And so the force of God is at work here in an incredible way. And so that's what happens. And then the story goes on. They go to the door. They recognize it's Peter. They bring him in. Peter says, man, don't talk about this, right? In verse 14, they were, they, she recognized Peter's voice. He kept knocking in verse 16. Peter, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers, a different James here, by the way. This is James, the brother of Jesus that he's talking about here in this verse, down in verse 17, not the James that was beheaded, who was the brother of John. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and he left for another place. Who knows where he went? Didn't matter. What does he do first, though? He shows up at the church where they were praying, and he says, this is what God has done. God has released by his force. God's force is amazing to us because it shapes everything about us. The shaping of God's force is what we want to talk about. The understand that it's shaping our lives. 
It should shape who we are. Now, how does it do that? The second thing we would add is prayer is our guide into the fullness of God's Spirit. We cannot have the fullness of God's Spirit without prayer inside our lives. But God wants to shape us. He wants to bring the force of himself into our lives, into our church, and it may surprise us what he does. Because what he did here in Acts chapter 12, we don't find that much more happening in the church uh, uh, when they first started, or in history. There, there are not other times where we have people saying, hey, an angel led me out of prison. It happened once in Acts chapter 12. It happened with Paul when Paul and Silas were in Philippi. When, uh, when they were in jail, the angel came in and caused a, 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 an earthquake to happen, but they didn't leave. They stayed right there so the jailer and his family could become followers of Christ. So see, the Spirit of God, which is the force which comes out in prayer, is not the same all the time. So just don't look for some some way that it's going to happen. Let's look for the force of God that guides us into the fullness of the Spirit of God. And that's what we find in this passage of Acts chapter 12. It is the Spirit of God that is at work. How do we know that? Because in Acts chapter 1, the Spirit of God fell, right? In Acts chapter 1, they were waiting on the Spirit to come. He told them to stay in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, actually, is when the Spirit of God came at Pentecost. So the Spirit was alive. It was among the people. They were praying in the fullness of God's spirit, asking God to do something, waiting for God to act. When he did act, they were surprised by it. They were shocked by it. Yet, they saw that it was from the Lord when Peter showed up at the door. God always allows us to see what he is doing. He's not trying to keep things from us. He's not trying to hide things from us. He wants us to see the power of his force in our life. He desires for us to recognize that far more than I think that we do. Now, the third thing, or really the last thing that I'll say about this was prayer is the shaping force of our lives. Prayer is our guide, guide into the fullness of the Spirit. And prayer, get this one, prayer moves ordinary people to do extraordinary things right? Prayer moves ordinary people to do extraordinary things. In this passage, in verse 12, we don't have anyone's name listed. You get that? Peter, he's there, and Rhonda, the young lady who answered the door who didn't believe it was Peter. All the people in the back room praying, we never get their names. The people who are on their knees earnestly beseeching God, we don't know who they are. Where do they go? What do they do? How do they function the next day? We, we know at the end of this story here in chapter 12, these verses, uh, Herod goes ballistic, right? Man, and it says in, in this passage that no small commotion. I, I guess there was no small commotion. He, he goes ballistic to the point that he has all the guards who were there, he has them killed because they can't explain what had happened. And so they lost their lives over this thing. So it wasn't a small matter that we're talking about here. It was a huge deal. Peter, the leader of the church, saw it doing incredible things, was escaping from prison, and nobody could explain it. What do you do with that? You kill the guards, because it's got to be their fault, right? But in the middle of that, my point is, we don't know any of the names of the people that were praying, right? 
We don't, we don't know if they were men, how many of them. We don't know the women who were there. We don't know if teenagers were in the room. We, we assume all that to be true. Now, why do I say that? Because, see, it's the prayer of ordinary people that makes God do extraordinary things. The focus is not on the people who are praying. It should never be on those of us who are praying. The focus is on what God is doing. That's where the focus is. So when you're praying and we're asking God to respond, to listen, to react to all that you're praying, is the focus on what you want or is it really on what God is doing? Is the focus on what we desire as a church or is the focus on what we want to see God do through the life of the church? Does it matter who gets credit for it? Does it matter who names associated with it? Not according to Scripture, because according to Scripture, ordinary people were doing extraordinary things. Matter of fact, in, a, in the eighth chapter of Acts, when the gospel begins to spread and gospel begins to move out of Jerusalem, the disciples were all hanging together. They, they weren't even taking the gospel out. It was people going out into the marketplace taking the gospel. It wasn't the leaders. It wasn't the disciples. It wasn't the apostles. They were studying the word and talking about what they had seen God done up until that point. Now, they did go out later on. But when you look through the book of Acts and you, you wondered who in the world started the church at Philippi or who started the church at, at, at the great center of, of uh, Alex, Alexandria. Alexandria was one of the early church uh, homes. You may not have even heard of the church at Alexandria. Why? Because it was just ordinary people. We don't even know who started the church at Alexandria. We don't even know who started the church at Rome. Here, Paul goes to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. He wants us to go to start a church in Rome. When he finally ends up at Rome, the Bible says that the brethren were there to meet him. Why? Because some ordinary people who really were taking the gospel, who were seeking God, were already in Rome. They'd already started the church. They were already doing things of the gospel all over the place. Why? Because God was working in their lives. Now, what is my point? My point is really simple. Is that God wants to take us, who we are, ordinary people. He didn't care what we do or what our vocation is. Well, he does care. You know what I mean by that. But, but it's, we, don't, we shouldn't have to care. It shouldn't be the position that we have in the church. It shouldn't be the role that we have. It should be when we go out into our community and when we come in here and when we're walking in, in highways and hedges, according to God's word, we're, we're praying for people. We're, we're driving down the road instead of, instead of getting angry with a person and having road rage, we're praying for that person. Not that God would do something mean to them either, right? But that God would, would somehow intersect into their life or the doors in your neighborhood. How are you praying for the people who live behind those doors in your neighborhood as you drive by them? The people that you work beside of. How are we as ordinary people asking God to do something extraordinary in our community through the life of our church, through the life of another church. Does it matter? Absolutely not. What it matters is this God is going to be the one who's doing a work because he has started the work and he asked us as a church. He asked you as an individual, how are you going to pray? How are you going to call upon the name of the Lord? How are you going to surrender our lives to him so it changes us? And we talk about prayer changing the world, and I believe that it does. But really, prayer begins by changing us, our hearts, to get us in tune with what the Father wants, what his desire is, what his hope and purpose is for our church, 
for our community, for individuals. I look at the community around us of southern Indiana, and I see hurt, I see brokenness, I see lostness. Yet right in the middle of that, he's placed Graceland Baptist Church. Not a building, but you. You go out to school every day, 150 of you go to school every day. What kind of impact can you make going to those classrooms, meeting beside of people? Could it be that God has you beside the person you're beside of, not because you chose to or not because somebody put you there, but because God wants you there to speak into their lives? to give them some kind of hope, some kind of direction. You go to IUS, why are you there? Maybe because, well, I decided to go there in order to get a degree. Maybe not. Maybe you didn't decide to go there at all. Maybe God put you there so that you could be an impact on that campus like no one else. You, you have a job at, at Amazon or wherever you might work. Maybe God, you're saying, man, I'm just thankful to have a God. Maybe I have a job. Maybe it's the fact that God put you there so that you could be used as an ordinary person in that place to see God do extraordinary things at that place for his glory. How does God want to use you in that way? By pray, by praying, by prayer that starts it all in our lives, your life and the life of our church.